The Water Values Podcast, Session 67. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Gabe McGinnis. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my son Joey said, I'm Dave McGinsey and thanks for joining me. Today we've got a great pair of guests for you uh, and they're speaking on a very important topic. But before I introduce them, a few quick items. First, uh, if you haven't done so, please don't forget to take the Water Values listener survey uh, on the website. It's at thewatervalues.com. And please don't forget to rate and equally as important, review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory on which you might listen. That'll really help get the word out about the podcast. And while you're at it, you might as well subscribe to the podcast so you get the automatic downloads. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Well, today we're going to discuss issues surrounding whether or not we should have a federal water policy. Jan Newman of Tonkin Torp, a law firm in Oregon, and Nathan Bracken of Smith Hartvickson, a law firm in Utah, uh, join me today to discuss this fascinating issue And both Nathan and Jan have a lot of experience dealing with water issues, so this will be a great episode. Uh, One small warning, we had some internet troubles while we were recording, so I did the best we could to get the sound quality pushed through. Uh, But there are a couple of places where there might be a garble, so just stick with it. Nathan and Jan do a great job and lend you their perspectives based on years of experience of legal issues involving water. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Jan and Nathan, thanks so much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Really appreciate your time. Uh, let's get a little background from each of you. Jan, let's start with you. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in water? Sure. Um, I grew up in the Midwest in the land of 10,000 lakes, Minnesota, and I always loved water. Uh, I went to uh, law school with the intention of being an environmental lawyer, and in my first year of law school, I hated law school until I read a case about the Colorado River and the disputes over the Colorado River, and I was fascinated by the fact that there was actually law about water allocation because I hadn't known that, and it was kind of an epiphany, actually. I fell in love with it right then, and it took me a few years of being a commercial litigator to wind my way back around. But um, since then, I've been heavily involved in water policy and water issues, and now I'm practicing water law. Terrific. And how about you, Nathan? Well, I grew up somewhere else, too. I grew up back in Maryland, and I was actually a whitewater rafting guide for a while in my youth and grew up on the Chesapeake Bay in some ways and always had an interest in water. When I relocated out here to Utah and went to law school, I continued to have that interest, but Typically, when you start off in your career as an attorney, you don't always get to choose what you, you do. And I ended up doing family law with quite a bit of mediation. And so I was a mediator doing a lot of alternative dispute work. And I was approached by an organization known as the Western States Water Council to come on board and be their attorney. And eventually, I became their general counsel and their assistant director. And in that role, I, I helped represent state water managers from 18 states on water issues. And so really have always had an interest in water, was really able to fully develop it, I think, as in my former role with the council, and have since moved into private practice, water law attorney, still doing quite a bit of alternative dispute resolution work. Okay, terrific. Now, uh, our topic today is is whether or not we should have a federal water policy. And let's, let's start off, Jan, if you could, could you kind of give us the landscape of 
of the the regulations affecting water um, that currently exist on on a federal level? Uh, sure. <laughs> very very quickly. Yeah, just there a thumbnail. Are, yeah, there are hundreds of statutes. I mean, I guess my my point in this debate has always been that. In fact, we do have a federal water policy, whether we like it or not, because we have so many federal regulatory programs that affect both water quality in terms of um, Bureau of Reclamation, Corps, I mean, excuse me, water quantity, Bureau of Reclamation and Corps of Engineers with their large water development and management projects. And then, of course, the Clean Water Act, the Environmental Protection Agency, and the uh, massive regulatory system of over water quality. And then we have many, many thousands, millions of acres of federal lands that um, have activities on them that affect both quantity and quality. And then, of course, we have massive uh, subsidy programs for agricultural subsidies, um, development subsidies, all kinds of different things. And so uh, the water-related uh, legislation and regulation at the federal level is pervasive, although it's not necessarily cohesive. I guess I'll leave it at that for now. Okay, so to bring a little pop culture into this, I kind of I kind of recall uh, the movie Singles, and there was one uh, one scene where where Kira Sedgwick's character kind of says, you know, I, I think you I think that a you have an act and b that not having an act is your act, and I kind of get the sense that that's what you're saying about about federal water policy right now is that we have all these regulations, but they're not cohesively tied together. And so even though there, there may not be a federal water policy, there is one kind of de facto, de facto just because yes. we have all these regulations. I mean, Nathan, what, what's your perspective? I mean, what are we, is that landscape that Jan's kind of talking about? Is that, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? really necessarily disagree. The, the fact of the matter is, is that we do have some federal policies. You can't ignore the fact that we have a federal role in water, primarily through reclamation, uh, the Endangered Species Act, the various EPA, clean water and safe drinking water programs. So so I agree with her uh, that, that we do have, and, and I think what we've called in the past, the shadow water policy that, that isn't coordinated. I think what really becomes difficult, though, is when we talk about what to do about the current situation. And I think that's that's where I, I feel that the real rubber needs to hit the road and where there is quite a bit of disagreement in the water community about what to do next. And the term federal water policy is often a loaded term that, that many people think and view very differently. But, but the reality is, and I hope we can talk about this more on, on today's call, is some of the things that we can do today to move this forward. And, and also, I think some of the things that are being done to help resolve some of this confusion. So, so Jan, could you talk about what what do we mean by policy when we're talking about federal water policy, and what 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 would you advocate that a federal water policy look like? Okay, um, a, a policy. I mean, first of all, I think Nathan's absolutely right. The words federal water policy are are fighting words. They're loaded terms, and they mean different things to different people. I mean, policy is not the same as law. Policy is really meant to be the um, the uh, goals, the aspirations, and then the notion of how you're going to get there, how you're going to measure your progress toward goals. And then law, of course, is how you implement some of those policies. And I guess my feeling is that we have a lot to do in terms of cleaning up what we have now because we have so many inconsistencies and 
duplications, omissions, and then uh, downright contradictory policies. So I don't necessarily advocate a comprehensive federal water policy. I do advocate a comprehensive cleanup, if you will, of what we have now to eliminate some of the most glaring inconsistencies. And I guess one example of that is just the, the kinds of agricultural subsidies we give that also cause us both water quantity and water quality problems. And subsidies are a perfectly decent legal choice to implement certain policies, but we're still implementing the policies of 100 years ago with some of our, some of our subsidies and agricultural policies. And I think that we need to clean that up. I, uh, one of the things that Nathan and I have talked about before is that um, it, the advocates for federal water policy often do speak as if they want a completely comprehensive federal system that you know kind of integrates quantity, quality, land management, water management, and so forth. And that is a very controversial thing because it would involve um, additional federal powers, perhaps, or additional federal exercise of powers in different areas that make people nervous. And the, the, those who speak against a federal water policy are often really talking about they don't want the federal government involved in certain kinds of affairs. And so the two sides are often talking past each other. And we've likened it to the, the Cadillac version of a policy versus the, um, the rent-a-wreck version, which is what I feel like we have now. And I'd like to see it something in between those two. Sure. And, and so, Nathan, what about your thoughts on, on what, policy, uh, what, what policy entails and whether or not a federal water policy would be workable? I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? I do. I do. And I think Jan mentioned this Cadillac versus Rantarek analogy, which I think is perfect. And we actually had the chance to speak together a few months ago and she had a, a perfect picture of a Cadillac concept car, which I think is what most people think about when we talk about a federal water policy. And, and the point that I made then and I'll make now is I think for specifically when we're talking about this comprehensive policy that we just aren't there yet. The steps haven't been made to, to do such a thing. And I also don't think it's, it's workable just given how complex water is, how different states have different legal frameworks, but also different hydrologies. And so the challenge then becomes in, in talking about what can we do now. And to me, I think before we can really get to the, the policy part of things, we need to figure out the relationships between states and, and the federal government. And the states have and should have, in my opinion, primacy over state water allocation and most of the water decisions that are made. But there needs to be some sort of a way to coordinate and better interact between state water managers and, and the federal governments that that have, or the federal agencies that have some type of a role in water. And I think that's what's been missing now, is that in many ways, you have this, this idea of cooperative federalism that's embedded in things like the Safe Drinking Water Act and the Clean Water Act. But what cooperative federalism means to states is often something very different to the federal agencies. And until we can figure out how these two very important sovereigns work together to manage water, it's going to be very difficult to come up with any type of policy. Okay, so, so Jan, in light of what Nathan is, is talking about here, how, what can we do in order to kind of bridge that gap and, and bring some consistency to, to the federal water regulations and, while bringing that consistency, also have it harmonize with, with you know, some state sovereignty? 
Well, I think that's a, a, a challenging question. I guess that one of the things that I would like to see, and I, I hesitate to say this because it's going to sound like we need another study. And we've had studies about federal water policy, both you know, limited to Western policy, to national policy, many, many times. And a lot of the research that's been done by those work groups and task force are, is still good, uh, good advice today. I think that one thing that might make a lot of sense in today's climate is today is to actually take a look at the federal budget and, and try to understand the spending that is uh, allocated to different water-related programs, and I mean, you know, drought, flood control, irrigation, um, quantity control, endangered species, land management agencies, try to take a comprehensive look at that. And a few years ago, when I was on the Western Water Policy Review Advisory Commission, we did have a, um, a Congressional Budget Office uh, study, very preliminary, very minimal, that sort of laid out all the different federal spending on water. I think if that effort were pushed much, much harder and much further, we would, a lot of things would pop up as inconsistent or contradictory. And then I think what Nathan's talking about, absolutely, that the federal government shouldn't then, either the federal agencies or even Congress, shouldn't then say, okay, here's our problem, here's what we're gonna do to fix it. Instead, they should look to the states as partners. Again, I hesitate to say this because it's a, a, a an idea that has been shot down many times. There used to be river basin commissions and they kind of fell apart back, you know, many decades ago. But if you look at the at the United States, you know, we've got significant, huge um, interstate basins. 31 states and two provinces are drained by the Mississippi, eight states in the Great Lakes Basin, seven states in the Colorado and the Columbia Basins, um, massive areas of the economy depend on the water uh, as the foundation of the economy in these different states, both hydropower, uh, irrigation, and so forth. Eight states overlie the Ogallala Aquifer. So uh, it's not just a single state coordinating with the federal government. It's several states coordinating with the federal government um, throughout these river basins to try to address some of the inconsistencies and the um, most pressing environmental and economic problems of those basins. And I, and I think Nathan has some good ideas about sort of method. <laughs> okay. So how that could come about. sure. So how, how did we, how did we even get to this, to this point of, how, was it just these federal regulations and laws were passed in different eras and, and because they were passed in different eras, there wasn't much coordination and that's how we kind of got to the point where we are, or do either of you have a, have a, have a thought on, on how, how the situation even got to this point. Well, I know Jan does, but I'll, I'll just jump in really quickly because I part of it is that water water is a very fragmented community. It, it's not like, for example, the environmental community when, when you're talking about endangered species. They can coalesce around the species and have a very unified message. If you, if you talk to water professionals about a certain issue, you're likely to get different opinions from each of them. And so it, it's been fragmented, I think, at a community level, but it's also fragmented at an administration and congressional level. We have a, a whole plethora of different committees within Congress that have competing jurisdiction over various water issues. You introduce a water bill, it could go to two or three different committees that may have very different perspectives about how to do things. 
honestly, everything back in D.C. is politics, too. So a lot of this is what you can get for your constituency. And so I think we have a lot of policies that weren't necessarily coordinated when we put them together. And I think perhaps the overarching challenge that we've always had with water is water isn't an issue that is in the forefront of the average voter's mind. And so for that reason, it's not something like defense, which everybody follows to some extent. It's, it's very much in the background. And because of that, it hasn't really been coordinated or thought about much. And I think it's usually in many cases an afterthought. And, and for instance, we've had a lot of talk about infrastructure in this country, but almost all of that conversation, including some of the president's proposals about how to deal with our infrastructure graph, are almost entirely focused on everything but water. And so water is usually something that's injected at the last minute or, or an afterthought. And so I, Jan I, has, has many more thoughts on this too, but th- those are my quick impressions. Sure. And how about you, Jan? I think, I, yeah, I think both of you have hit it on the head. It's a, it's kind of an accident of history. I mean, we, you know, every piece of federal legislation has come in to respond to either a particular problem or a p- particular set of political demands or pressures, and no one ever sat down and said, what should, uh, you know, the federal government's role be in water? It's just incrementally grown up over the years, beginning with some of the early um, transportation infrastructure, you know, back in the 1800s, and then just uh, glomming on decade after decade with uh, the Bureau of Reclamation, the Corps, the battles between the two, you know, the competition between the two as opposed to coordination, and then, of course, layering on all the environmental laws starting in the 60s and 70s. And Nathan's absolutely right. All of that has been split up among not just agencies, but among congressional committees. And then once you have that, you start to get constituencies that are lined up with those particular committees. And there are um, now, and have been for many decades, there are constituencies with vested interest in keeping it exactly the way it is, because they know where their pressure points are or where their political um, opportunities are. And they don't want to give that up. And so it's a it, it's under the radar, as Nathan says, you know, it hasn't been on the forefront of people's minds. There haven't been a lot of kind of water leaders in Congress. I mean, you know, occasionally one will pop up, but generally it's not something that's that sexy. And so people don't um, make their careers on it. And then you have all these constituencies and vested interests working in the background um, to kind of get what they want out of the current system. So it's it's a pretty tricky uh, system to undo. You know, you've each kind of said that, hey, we're the, the regulatory landscape right now. It it's it's kind of the Renerec version of of the water policy. Now, Jan, how would you go about implementing what you've indicated as as kind of a cleanup? I mean, what what are the steps that need to be affected in order to to, to maybe not get a Cadillac? federal water policy, but to get something that's more in the line of a Chevrolet uh, water policy. Right. Or Subaru. That's what I Su- A Subaru. Okay. <laughs> um, it's nice and, you know, practical, works, everything else. Um, I think the issue of trying to make some changes has a couple of major components. One is we need some leadership at the federal level, and it's a tough issue to take leadership on because it's not that sexy. And it's kind of a long-haul issue, but we need someone in Congress to make water their legacy, and and more than one someone, and we need people at the high levels, but not the super political levels of the federal agencies to get on board. And then we need new coalitions, I think, from the various interest groups, um, instead of 
the environmentalists fighting the uh, irrigators or uh, endangered species folks fighting about states' rights and federal power. I think we need, um, at a re perhaps at a regional basin level, we need people to come together and realize that their interests are very much aligned. And I would like to think that the pressures of climate change and, of course, the the sort of example drought in California um, and uh, national security issues around water supply, water, drinking water quality, a lot of those things, and food security issues, those are issues that should be bringing interest groups together in slightly different coalitions and getting them to demand that the federal government take a look at the spending that's happening in the water area and how it could be made more efficient and more appropriate, and then also looking at the ways in which one aspect of federal water policy may be undercutting other aspects. And all of this has to be done in coordination with the states, as, as Nathan has mentioned as well. Yeah. So, Nathan, what, what's your perspective on, on federal water policy and, uh, and getting it to move forward from the current model to, to something that's a little more workable? Well, a couple of things. I, I think the first one is to avoid the term federal water policy, even though you're trying to do the same thing. <laughs> but I, I think it's just, it's, it's a loaded term. What I would focus on are principles of collaboration. And this is, because the current confusion is a problem for everybody. And and it's, and I think the, from a state perspective, the fundamental thing that needs to happen now is we need to have a relationship of trust, which for many states just doesn't exist. And there are a couple of things that I would suggest. As I, as I mentioned before, there needs to be a more mutual understanding between the states and the federal government about exactly what the state's uh, status is, and particularly for laws like the Safe Drinking Water Act and the Clean Water Act, what it means to be a co-regulator under those programs. And so there are a couple things that I would think of. States need to be recognized that they are unique and they have different responsibilities and obligations than your average stakeholder. And, and that means that giving states a early engagement in the development of any federal rule or policy one of the biggest problems with the recently finalized Clean Water Act jurisdiction rule is that many states, particularly in the West, did not feel that they were adequately, adequately consulted with or had a chance to fully collaborate with the agencies until after the rule had already been fully formed. What we want to see is the opportunity to engage up front. Uh, in other words, for the agency to come to them and say, hey, we have a problem, we want to solve it. In that case, we want to figure out how to better define the Clean Water Act, the extent of the Clean Water Act in light of some very confusing Supreme Court decisions, but rather than have EPA in the core develop the rule on their own, work collaboratively with the states and through state associations to come up with, with uh, a joint proposal. That's obviously easier to said than done, but that's that's part of the problem that states have is they hate to see a rule for the first time when it's published in the Federal Register, and they don't feel that that adequately represents or recognizes their co-regulator status. Uh, a couple other things that I would suggest is to recognize that that there's a difference between collaboration and consultation. Oftentimes, the federal agencies may, may conflate the two and say, hey, well, we talked to you. We told you we were doing a rule. That counts. And, and the states will say, no, you told us you were doing a rule. But what we want to do is sit down and work together on what it's going to look like, especially if it's a rule that impacts programs that we operate through delegated authorities, such as Section 402 under the Clean Water Act. The other thing that I think is, is a, a, a real point of tension between federal agencies and the states is this perception, I think, particularly among some federal agencies, and I think also members of the public, that states 
don't have the ability to adequately protect federal needs and interests within their state systems. And, and that may be true in some cases, but more often than not, I don't think it is. And for instance, you have some, some really good and I think innovative examples where states have worked with federal agencies to address federal water needs. For instance, the state of Utah, where I'm, I'm located, has entered into a number of really successful compacts with the National Park Service over the national parks here. The state of Montana was able to resolve all of its federal reserve water rights claims through negotiation with the federal agencies. And recently, the state of Oregon completed an adjudication in which it gave the Klamath tribe um, time immemorial water rights. I don't know if you can get any any more senior than that. And so there are <laughs> examples of, of where the state system has worked to protect federal interests or, or in the case of the Klamath tribe, tribal interests that are held in trust by the federal government. And so I think discussing those and building upon the, the bottom-up approaches that have worked around the country is a place to start. Okay. So, I think, I think, go ahead, Jan. I, can I just comment on that? I, I want to say that I agree strongly with a couple of things that Nathan said. One, that um, states and tribes are really somewhat different than other, you know, they're not just a constituency or an interest group. Um, they are co-sovereigns and have huge interests in water policy as well as other areas. And I think that treating them somewhat differently and treating them more as collaborators instead of uh, consulting them or commenting, uh, getting comments from them is a really good idea. And that could go a long way to smoothing some of the changes that might need to, to take place. And the other thing I wanted to say I agree with is um, stop calling it federal water policy. I think that you know, if you, if you think of policy, uh, intentional policy, as setting some goals and priorities, there are some very clear things that are important. You know, drinking water quality is hugely important. Security of uh, water supplies is important. Securing, you know, river watershed health in the face of climate change, securing our water supplies both for national security purposes and for um, climate change, uh, upcoming climate changes, and that instead of talking about federal water policy, which is not the goal, um, the goal should be to talk about safe drinking water, you know, good water quality, healthy watersheds, healthy economies, and so forth. And that that might help focus the issue a little bit better. One of the questions, Nathan, I've got for you is is the the cooperative federalism. I mean, is is could one of the the issues be about consulting all the states is that the EPA or, or the Corps or uh, other federal agencies are just worried they're going to be inundated with 50 different, um, uh, 50 different sets of comments from each state that is different and there's no way that you can, you can coordinate. So there are going to be winners and losers in that. I mean, what is, isn't that one of the big challenges of, of the cooperative federalism is getting that input and how, how do you how do you solve that or how do you how, how do you kind of reduce the transaction costs so to speak for for getting cooperative federalism back working again well that's a great question i'm glad you asked it and there's there's one point that i should make beforehand and, and any principle in order for it to work for the states, the state's primary authority over water allocation and water management needs to be recognized. And so I think making sure that the states are assured of that is the first step, because otherwise there's, there's this chance that they may feel that, that these policies aren't. And I think part of the way you could get around that is 
is that consensus necessarily doesn't need to be the goal, but making sure that the states are involved in the process to develop these policies rather than being just a member of the public commenting on them is a way, I think, to flush out a lot of this. And, and there are some examples, I think, that, that have been helpful. For instance, EPA is currently developing two treatment as states rulemakings. They are rulemakings to help define the process that tribes would follow to receive authority or delegated authority to operate certain Clean Water Act programs. Because of all the flack they got from the Clean Water Act rule, they reached out to the Western states before they even put pen to paper and said, here's our problem. This is what we need to do. What do you think? And, and that was generally well received. And so obviously not every state's gonna be on the same page, but beginning that dialogue on the front end, I think is very helpful. And there's another example from EPA that happened uh, with a, a rulemaking that they did for their national pollutant elimination discharge system, the MPDS system. It was an electronic reporting rule. It was really controversial. They did a rule, but then after the fact, they put together a, a group, a work group, so to speak, with the Environmental Council of States and the Association of Clean Water Administrators to sit down and sift through all, all the comments they got. Now, the goal of the work group wasn't necessarily to, to develop a consensus, but they did try hard to do a consensus. And I think those types of approaches are much more likely to not only sift out uh, all the problems, not entirely, of course, but also to find where everyone agrees. And and while I don't think that they'll ever be able to entirely get every state on board, they can certainly go a long ways in finding out where the pitfalls are, where the problems are, which language is, is problematic. And also by involving the states in the process, it makes it much more likely that they will buy into the ultimate product or at least not be as opposed to it. And the current WOTUS rule, the Clean Water Act rule, is a good example of what happens when the states aren't involved in it. 28 of them have already sued to overturn it. And I think in large part that's due to the fact that the states felt that this was an infringement on their water allocation authority, that it was going to infringe on their water quality protection statutes. And, and most of those states that are involved will say we weren't involved in this and therefore we can't support it. Jan, do you have any thoughts on that? I think Nathan's right. I think you either have the transaction costs up front or you have them at the back end. And so it's not, you know, it's not that one way uh, avoids them and the other way doesn't. It's just a matter of where they come. It's hard to do this stuff. And there are lots of different positions and there are 50 states and, you know, lots of different issues across the different river basins throughout the country. So, but you're, you're going to get the transaction costs in terms of litigation and political posturing and, um, controversy after if you don't do that work up front. Right. right. And Jan, I just wanted to add to that. One of the real challenges that states have is once a rule has been published, for example, the Forest Service's recent groundwater directive, which has now been withdrawn, once that thing has, is out for public comment, it becomes politicized and it makes it much harder for the governors and the people that represent them to engage in the type of collaborative discussions that I think we need to come up with effective rules and policies. And the Forest Service Directive is a perfect example of that. They didn't consult at all with the states. They published it and then after the fact realized their mistake and entered into very substantive and collaborative engagement with the states, in the West at least. But by then the damage was already done and it was a political hot potato and they ultimately had to withdraw it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so in, in terms of, I've heard both of you say, look, you know, let's not, let, let's change the nomenclature. It shouldn't be a federal water policy. It should, it, it should be kind of just, uh, how, how can we coordinate better and how can we clean up our existing system of regulation? Um, so that these laws are, we can remove the contradictions and make, 
make a workable system of regulation. Uh, is, beyond that, is there anything else that you want to, uh, you know, for example, Nathan, is there anything else you want to uh, discuss today or, or, or mention about this, the issue of uh, water policy? Yeah, there are two key points I want to make, and, and well, actually three. One is make sure that the states have sufficient flexibility in, in any delegated program. I think what's, what's often a challenge, and this is a buy-in, I think, for the states to want to have a more coordinated federal effort, is that the administration and Congress and these various committees often do things differently. And so that means that a state-administered program, say like the Clean Water State, Drink, uh, the, the Clean Water State Revolving Fund, has numbers of strings that are attached to it by Congress that weren't coordinated. It makes it harder for them to do their job. The second one, and I think this is perhaps the most important, is there needs to be ongoing and continued dialogue between the state water administrators and their federal counterparts, both at the regional level and at the D.C. level. And, and the point of that is to develop these relationships ahead of time before crises or problems happen so that when a federal agency has a problem and it needs to fix it or do a rulemaking, it can already have those relationships in place and have enough trust to go to its, their state correspondents and say, hey, how do we fix this? But lastly, there's a silver lining to current mess, and that is that because of that uncertainty, everybody has something to lose if it were more clearly defined. And for that reason, there's an incentive, in my opinion, for the states and the federal government to work better together. Also, I, and I'm talking about the states, but the tribes need to be at the table here, too. Those sovereign types of entities need to begin discussing these things and figuring out how to work this out. Because otherwise, the courts are going to define it for them, or perhaps maybe Congress, and that's not going to be probably what everybody wants. Yeah, good point. Good point, uh, Jan. How about you? What do you? What are your kind of closing thoughts? I think I, I echo what Nathan said. I think the co coordination, collaboration, is a really important place to start. I also think that the federal government needs to look internally and clean its own house in terms of looking at some of the conflicting subsidies, um, looking at the fact that its own federal land management agencies don't necessarily. Um, comply with the Clean Water Act as it's currently written, and perhaps if they did, they would understand more of the issues that the states are always complaining about um, and, and regulated parties. So I, and I think that the, the, the need to spend smarter at the federal level is so important. There are so many infrastructure needs, so many federal, uh, you know, the, Nathan mentioned the state revolving fund. There are all kinds of places where federal funds are really needed to help um, with future water management. And instead, a lot of those federal funds are going to uh, undercut existing programs. So I think that if the federal government looked in-house, cleaned up its, its uh, financing particularly, and took this approach with the states and tribes, we would start making some progress towards uh, getting a little bit more of a, of a Subaru or a Chevy instead of a rent-a-rack <laughs> policy. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for your time today. You guys have been fantastic. Uh, Nathan, for those folks who want to find out more about you, where can they go to find that information? Sure. I'm of counsel here at a Salt Lake City law firm called Smith Hartigson. Our email address or our, our, our website is www.smithhartvigsen.com. And there's plenty of information on our firm and also my bio and my contact information there as well. Great. And Jan, how about you? Where can folks go to find out more information about you? Same thing. I'm senior counsel at the Tonkin Torp Law Firm in Portland, Oregon, and the website is 
Tonkin, T-O-N-K-O-N.com. Fantastic. Well, again, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. And I think you've shed a lot of uh, light on the issues surrounding uh, federal water policy and the relationship of the, the federal water regulations with the states and tribes. So thanks so much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. You bet. Well, that was my interview with Jan Newman and Nathan Bracken. They were fantastic to work to work with, especially given that the Internet was not cooperating the day we recorded. And I hope you found the inter- interview as interesting as I did. Well, here's here's my big takeaway. Uh, talk of a federal water policy uh, brings out deep-seated notions and beliefs about what that federal water policy might look like, such that you know sides form up pretty quickly uh, to fight about whether or not the federal water policy or changes to federal water policy should move forward. And I think I think Nathan and Jan were spot on when they talked about the need for reform, given all the conflicting and inconsistent water regulations, but that the sovereigns involved, federal government, state governments, and the tribes, they need to co- improve communications so that trustful relationships can be forged. And we heard a lot about cooperative federalism and how right now it seems that that the feds and the states and the tribes, they may have different visions of how that cooperative federalism is supposed to work. But I, I think what needs to happen is we really need to start communicating back and forth, build those trustful relationships. Uh, and so that when when we need to have that line of communication open, it it can be open and each side will trust each other uh, when when things are being communicated back and forth. You know, because right now that trust, it, it doesn't exist. So we're automatically going into litigation mode when issues pertaining to federal water policy are raised. And on, on the, the notion of federal water policy, you know, I had a uh, law professor who actually taught income tax, and he used to say that whenever a deduction or exemption uh, was uh, enacted into the Internal Revenue Code, a cottage industry would grow up around that deduction or exemption like a, like a barnacle on the bottom of a boat, like barnacles on the bottom of a boat. And pretty soon the political will to change the deduction or exemption uh, would fade as the cottage industry would, would fight back against anyone proposing changes to that deduction or exemption. You know, that's kind of what I heard Nathan and Jan saying is that some people just want things to stay the same. Essentially, they'd rather dance with the devil they know than the devil they don't when it comes to water. Um, and... And it, it seems that that there are a lot of conflicting and inconsistent provisions in the, as Jan said, the Renerec version of the federal water policy we had. And she's she wasn't asking for you know a big kind of Cadillac version of a federal water policy. Just as she said, a kind of a Subaru version, one in which uh, you know it's that that is consistent. It works. It always. Uh, is is available for you to go out and, and get done what you need to get done. So that's that's really what what she was looking for. And so I think um, that we really need some sort of impetus for change. And perhaps the drought that's going on in California and and in other areas, maybe that's going to provide the impetus to really get us uh, to look at making modifications to the Renerec version of the the national water policy that we have now. Well, you can check out the show notes for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 68. 
And please don't be bashful in letting me know what interested you about the interview by leaving a comment on the show notes or by emailing me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me at DTM1993 and tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. And don't forget to rate and please review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and any other podcast directory you might use. And also, please subscribe on those podcast directories so that you get the automatic downloads. And please don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast and to sign up for the Water Values newsletter, which can be done at thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.